Hello and welcome to The Rules of Investing. I'm your host, David Thornton. Dividend-paying equities have long formed the backbone of retirees' portfolios, and the historic stalwarts of these portfolios are well-known, BHP, Telstra, and Commonwealth Bank, to name a few. You might be mistaken for thinking that equity income portfolios are therefore set-and-forget propositions, made up of a limited number of dividend darlings that will pay out into perpetuity. We'd be wrong on both accounts, according to today's guest. Dr. Don Hampson is the founder and managing director of Plato Investment Management. Plato managed $11 billion in assets across three funds, an Aussie Equities Income Fund, a Global Equities Income Fund, and a Global Alpha Fund. Before that, he was responsible for over $10 billion in active and enhanced equity investments at State Street Global Advisors. In today's interview, In the upcoming interview, Don explains why dividend-paying equities are still the best place to generate income, what makes a dividend sustainable, how to identify dividend traps, and which sectors and stocks have the brightest dividend outlook. If you're an Apple Podcast or Spotify user, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Or if you're a LiveWire subscriber, hit the follow button at the bottom of the wire to get notified whenever we post new content. Not a LiveWire subscriber yet? Head over to livewiremarkets.com. It's free to sign up. You'll get access to the leading investment lines from Australia and abroad. All right, let's get stuck in. Don Hampson, thanks for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. Right, so inflation and higher rates have fundamentally changed the investment landscape. Um, How has the income subset been affected? Well, um, yeah, certainly... We haven't seen 7% inflation for 30 years, so it's uh, been a long time between drinks on the inflation side, which is probably a good thing. But, um, I mean, I actually put it the other way around. We've, been, we've had record low interest rates for a few years, and in fact, they've been very low for the last 10 years, but inflation was very low. What we've actually found is that inflation is now 7%, and yet interest rates are only you know 4%, and you know, maybe you get 5% over term deposit. So you've actually gone backwards rather than forwards. So you might think you're getting great term deposit rates, but on an inflation-adjusted basis, you're actually still losing money. And um, so so really, in a real basis, you're worse than you were two years ago because inflation was so low or or certainly no better. And um, so I think people have got to understand that, and that's something that I think will come up a few times today. Um, And... Interestingly, inflation is running at 7%, but if you look at the median company dividends in the February reporting season, and I know that's a bit old now, but um, the median company in Australia grew its dividends by 7%, which is the inflation rate. Now, you think about it, but, and there's one reason why you look at the long-term returns for, um, for companies, and they've been able to be a pretty good hedge against inflation. Partly because you know companies can create inflation and they can raise their prices, and to some extent, quite a few companies in Australia have caused inflation, or they haven't really caused it, but they benefited from it. So you look at the Woodsides and the Santoses, and the Ampoles and those sorts of groups. Um, yeah, we've got record gas price. We've had record gas price. They certainly increased. They had massive increase in dividends. Um, yes, we're finding that our gas bills are higher and, and other things, but there are companies that are on the other side of that. So um, to me, equities are still a good hedge against long-term inflation. And, and um, you know, unfortunately, interest rates aren't higher than inflation. So you're actually, you know, you, you're going backwards on, on that side of things. So, yes, the landscape's changed and, you know, um, we're back to a cycle. Um, but it's, it's still pretty tough for people they've got their money in term deposits if they, you know, because they look at every time you go to Woolies or Coles or wherever, you think uh, prices seem to be going up. You've said before dividends should form the backbone of a retiree's um, portfolio. Do you still hold that view in the current market? Yeah, I do. Um, You know, I think particularly Australian shares have fantastic yield and the franking credits on top of that. You know, it has been for for many, many years uh, fantastically yielding asset class. Now, you know, if you go back to the 80s, a bit of a different story because then interest rates are so high that um, you could get great returns out of, out of interest. But for the last 30 years, it's been a fantastic place uh, to generate income and growth in income, particularly when you uh, add on those franking credits. I mean, as an example of that, and this is a very long-term study, it's not our study, it's um, a study that 
is put out by Credit Suisse. It might be the last one they do, but they have this Credit Suisse annual long-term asset return report, and uh, it's actually done by a couple of academics. And they go back to like 1900, so they and they've just uh, about two months ago did their latest release. Uh, so it includes returns to the end of 2022, and so the 123 calendar years of returns. And the best performing market in the world in, on real terms, so that's adjusted for inflation, was the Australian equity market. That's on total return basis. And just, just highlights that you know, it's been a great hedge against inflation. It's got a positive real return. Um, it just pipped the US in, in terms of the size of that return. But the interesting thing is that those uh, academics out of London don't add the franking credits in because... Yeah, you know, Australia's pretty unique in those sort of things. So if you had about another 1.5%, which is what the index generates, it would, yeah, you know, for Australian investors, it's actually a huge return relative to the, the next, well, a, a bigger, much bigger difference between it and the next market, which was the US over that same period. Let's talk about those franking credits. To what extent should dividend imputation influence the way investors choose their income stocks? Well, Certainly, if you are in a position to get the value of the franking credit, so and that's basically if you're a resident Australian investor, then when you look at the yield of the stock or the total return of the stock, my mind, you should be definitely adding the franking credit in. And um, most dividend yields, most um, performance numbers, and most performance surveys actually of managed funds don't include franking credits. Yet, if you look back over the last sort of 20, 30 years, the in, at the index level, they've averaged about 1.5%. And you think about the, the compounding impact of an extra 1.5% each year, it, it accumulates to a, a large difference over time. Um, and for some companies, well, you look at our, you know, the way we invest, we get something like 2.5% or more franking on our portfolio. So uh, if, you only, if you only look at the returns X franking, you're missing out on a, on, on two and a half percent of the returns, and two and a half percent is a pretty chunky number. I mean, given especially where we've come from, when interest rates are virtually zero, I mean, you're going to get a, you were getting for many years the franking credit yield was far better than what you could get from a term deposit. So they're, they're very important for Australian investors, particularly for um, retirees um, and and you know zero tax or tax exempt investors. That includes charities and foundations as well. Because you get it, you still get a full refund of those if you're in um, pension phase superannuation and your balance is less than 1.7 million, um, and that's an individual balance, and most people are in that bracket. So, you know, those numbers, especially if you compound that over 10, 20 years, it's a huge impact. You know, so I mean, I I used to did some calculations of my mother who's passed away now, but I, on her portfolio, and it were, it it would have reduced her income her income by 28 percent. 28%. 28%, yeah. Because it was large, it was virtually all in Australian shares, fairly good yielding Australian shares that were fully frank, paying fully frank dividends. And that's, that's the issue is that you had, um, you know, you do the math, it's like you have a $7 dividend or 7% yield or a $7 dividend as a $3 franking credit. And so if you get a refund of the franking credit, you then get $10 income. If you lose the $3, if you weren't going to get $3 franking credit refund, you don't have $7 income, not not $10, so you've lost 30% of the income. And my mother had a little bit of interest and in, in, in stuff in the bank, but not getting a lot of return. But I worked it out to be a 28% reduction, which is huge. And, and you can understand why. And, you know, my mother wasn't that wealthy, but she just she was just above the getting the pension. Um, and to her, it would have been a, a massive change in her standard of living. What would you say to an investor who is considering pivoting their portfolio away from dividends towards, uh, you know, the bond market, money market, um, with the returns that they're getting at the moment? Well, certainly, um, you talked before about equities being a backbone of portfolio. That doesn't mean you have every, all your eggs in one basket. You want to diversify portfolio. In fact, you know, I've got a PhD in finance. I used to be a finance lecturer and, you know, sort of finance 101 or the first rule of finance is, you know, diversification is the only free lunch you have and so you should have a, a, a well-diversified portfolio. Um, I mean, I think the problem for the last, you know, five years and particularly the last three years has been interest rates have been kept ridiculously low by central banks. Um, that the the returns and the and the real well the returns on um, 
on bonds and cash have been you know, awful, really. And so whilst, on the one hand, you want diversification, but you don't want to lock yourself into basically earning nothing. And um, so I think in that situation, that you know, shares, shares look pretty good, but I'm still not advocating putting everything there. As I mentioned earlier, though, the pro- problem with, yes, yields have risen and bond yields have risen and, and cash rates have risen, but they haven't ris- risen enough to actually offset inflation. So if you if you do real ad- inflation-adjusted returns, they're, st- they're still not that great. But again, um, you do need diversification. You don't want to have everything in Australian shares. You want global shares as well, if you can pivot to some global shares that provide income. Um, and there is a place for, for bonds and cash at, at, to steady the portfolio and other assets, so infrastructure and property and those sorts of things. How should investors think about managing capital on the one hand and income on the other? Well, I, th- I think you've got to look at both sides because uh, and our fund um, or our income strategies have dual objectives. And the first one is, and really I think the most important one, is you want a decent total return. And particularly if you're giving your money to an active manager, you want to, you know, the active manager should really beat the market and have a higher return than the market after they pay their fees. Um, and uh, thankfully, we've we've actually been able to do that, and since the life of our fund. Um, but clearly, if if you want to live off income and you want a high level of income, um, then then you should be generating a substantial amount of income. And again. Um, probably more than what the index would, would provide. I mean, our, and so our dual objectives are we want to beat the, t- the index in total return terms, but we also want to provide more income along the way. And I suppose our philosophy, and, and I think a lot of our clients, is if I can get enough income from my portfolio to satisfy, satisfy my needs, um, I don't have to start selling things. I don't have to start cashing in some shares to fund my, um, my standard of living. Because the one problem for retirees, a big problem for many retirees, most retirees, is longevity risk. Mm-hmm. You know, people are living longer. Um, you never know, you know how long you're going to live. You don't know whether you might have to, you know, go into an expensive aged care home or whatever it might be. Uh, you want that money to to uh, to satisfy, your, you know, your, provide your a good standard of living throughout your life. But you don't know how long you're going to live, and 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 no one does. So. But if you can satisfy uh, your standard of living from the income from your investments, you, it's almost like you're laughing because I, 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 that should start, go on forever. If you start, you know, from the day you retire, you start having to sell things to fund your retirement and you live for 30 or 40 years, you probably not, by the end you get 30, 40 years, you're probably going to have nothing left to sell. You'll be living off the pension. And the pension, you know, is going up. There's been inflation adjustments, but it's still not... Not a, not a fantastic way. I mean, I think if you've worked hard through your life, you've saved, you've got your money in super, you hope to have a better standard of living than just relying on the age pension. You also don't want to sell down the capital in a down market. Sequencing risk is another factor. Yeah, that you, correct. That is one of the other risks. Is And it's something that people don't, I think, really understand is that, uh, you know, because everybody does extrapolations and it's, it doesn't look at the, the intraday volatility. But, you know, if you had to sell shares in... Or March 2020, um, when the market fell like 30%, you, you're, you're selling your assets at you know, bargain basement prices. And if you, can, if you can actually generate enough income and not have to sell, well, by the end of the year, the market had bounced back to where it started. Now, you know, maybe you could sell the shares at the end of the year, but um, if you don't have to sell them at all, then, then you, you really are avoiding that sequencing risk. So you're definitely right. And some of that sequencing list is just... a, a almost like bad luck if the markets you know fell massively in the first year you retire and you start selling things then you're going to run out uh, out of money money much quicker than if that 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 big fall in the markets within another 10 or 20 years time so don what's your process for finding these dividend growers the reality is to some extent you start with that total return thing so you want to buy stocks that have a good total return so it's not all about income so you yeah, we look at valuation, we look at the quality of the company. Um, you know, that includes, we actually have like, a, if you like, an anti-quality factor, I call it, but it's called red flags. But you want to you buy stocks that you're comfortable with and there's not too many risks. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit like a, one of our guys is saying, it's like um, avoiding losses is, you know, winning by not losing, I suppose, is actually his catchphrase, is, is, 
if if I can avoid the losers, I'm going to win by definition. So we do a lot of work around making sure the companies are high quality or avoiding the low quality companies. Um, now, obviously, then we have this focus on on dividends. But interestingly, um, rule say rule number one in all the things you want to diversify portfolio. And if you actually looked at the Australian market, you know over the last 20, 30 years, one of the best performing stocks has been CSL. And yet it's yielding like one or two percent, unfranked, because most of its earnings are now offshore. But it's it's grown its dividends massively, um, but its yield is very poor. So, on the one hand, you say I want to have that stock in my portfolio because that's gonna, it's actually grown its dividends over the last 20, 30 years massively. But the yield is still only one percent because the share price has grown massively. But that's that's the thing. The total return has been absolutely fantastic. If you didn't put CSL in your portfolio, uh, it would have been very tough to to beat the market, um, uh, you know, just by buying dividend yield stocks. So we actually have CSL in our portfolio, but the, the way we do it is we work our, our dividend stocks even harder to get the income from them, so we actively trade portfolio to get dividends so we can still have high total return stocks like a CSL or a Macquarie Bank in our portfolio. And I think that's one of the... Well, I, I think that's why we've, we've sort of been successful is that... Um, we do focus on the total return as well as it's not just income. And you know, I think if you just focus on income and you buy the very highest yielding stocks, um, well, that, then, then you fall into the other trap, which is, is potentially those highest yielding stocks actually are dividend traps. And again, avoiding you know, dividend traps is another way of, of getting decent returns. So how do you identify those dividend traps? A dividend trap, or, you know, the way I look at it is a stock that's trading on a very high historic yield. So if you just pull out the, you know, the paper, the City Morning Herald or something, you know, go to the finance page, you, the, there's a dividend yield on most stocks and you can, you know, might find a stock with a 20% or 10% dividend yield and usually it doesn't include franking, but we would say you should add the franking on that because that's, you know, we've talked about that before, it's very important. But anyway, let's say the stock trading on 10 or 15%, maybe even 20% yield. But this is yield... Dividend yield is defined as dividends paid in the last year um, divided by the current share price. And the easiest way to make it for a stock to become a very high yield stock is the current price is depressed. Current price has fallen way out of bed compared to where it was 12 months ago or even two years ago. And because if that definition of dividends paid divided by price, well, if the price has suddenly fallen, the dividend yield suddenly rises. So if you look at just the dividend side, you're going to say, great, it's fantastic. But if, if you've been holding that stock, you know, the stock price is halved. So actually your total return is, is rubbish. So if you've already been in, it's rubbish. But even if you buy it today, um, the fact that the share price has halved is actually telling you something. It's telling you something that people think the outlook for this company is probably not very good. Its earnings are probably falling. And, you know, ipso facto, its dividends are likely to be cut too. And one of the ones, you know, examples that we've been using for the last year or so has been Magellan. And, yeah, I'm not going to go into the stories about why Magellan, you know, has had troubled times. I mean, you know, it, it has lost half its farm, etc. But the reality is that 12 months ago it paid a very big dividend and it's starting to cut those dividends. But if you, if you, it was, um, Magellan was trading on something like about a 20% yield uh, pre-Christmas, uh, so just before the end of 2022, you could buy it on like a 20 or 25, well, 20% cash yield and about a 25% gross yield. And we always look at it gross, including franking, but that's the historic yield. Um, but the share price over the last couple of years absolutely collapsed. And I said, that's telling you something. And sure enough, in February, when it announced its results, it cut its dividend, it cut its dividend last year, it'll cut its dividend in August last year as well. And I suspect it will cut its dividend again in August this year. And so you're not going to get the 25% yield. You're going to get a much... It's going to you know, halve the dividend or, or possibly even more. So you're going to get a much smaller the yield than they paid in the previous year. Um, so if you, you won't get anywhere near that high yield uh, because the stocks had all sorts of problems. And so... And again, when a, a stock... If the market doesn't fully expect that, although it largely expects it, but often the company will fall... You know, share price will fall again when it announces a big cut in its dividend... And then you've lost some more return and you only get a, a puny dividend. And, you know, so avoiding those traps and, you know, a couple of years ago we used the example of AGL, which, it, 
you know, has been struggling as well. And and so avo- avoiding those is a, is an important part. So don't just buy the highest yielding stock in the market. If if that's a simple, you know, that is not a great rule for dividend investing. In fact, it's almost going to guarantee you you'll buy a dividend trap. What's the motivation for a company <clears throat> to maintain the dividend yield um, when the stock price is, is pointed down? Um, is, is, is it a way for them to artificially you know, prop up the stock price in the hope of you know, not losing income investors or indeed attracting uninformed income investors? Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right there. The, the, the company can, you know, m- may feel that if they can maintain the dividend that the investors will be happy. Now, the problem is if you lost 50% of the price you paid for a stock, you're not going to be that happy even with the dividend. The other thing is that dividends are linked to earnings. The reality is you can only pay, especially fully frank dividends, because you have to have paid tax on the earnings to be able to frank a dividend. So um, in the short term, some companies may have retained earnings and other things and be able to maintain that dividend. But if their earnings are depressed for the longer term, they are eventually going to have to cut that dividend. And, um, you know, so if they're just holding it extremely high, maybe, you know, in the short term paying out more than they're earning, um, that's actually a bad signal. It's one of our sort of signals is if they're paying out more than they're earning, then their dividends are unsustainable. And eventually, unless their earnings bounce back, eventually they're going to have to cut that dividend. So it's a bit of false hope for companies, I think, if they if they try and maintain a, an abnormally high dividend, just try and keep the share price up. That's actually one of the factors that we use because we try and predict companies that will cut their dividends and having a very high payout ratio. So approaching 100%, so if you're paying it up to you know, 90, 100% of your earnings, that's, that's, that's pretty bad. But if you're actually, even worse, if you're actually paying out more than you're uh, earning, then that's definitely uh, a negative sign. So what are some examples of these dividend traps in the market right now? Well, I've talked about Magellan. Um, it's, I, I think there'll be a couple in the consumer discretionary uh, area where, again, the market price of some of those stocks have been beaten up a fair bit. Um, earnings sales are starting to come off as interest rates are starting to bite. And if you think about it from a macro point of view, um, consumer discretionary means you have some discretion about whether you have to buy the new sofa or the latest TV or what have you. And um, those stocks have had fantastic earnings for the last few years, but it's getting much tougher. Um, having said that, and this is, and this is, a, this is where it, 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 it is hard and it's never easy, is those stocks are trading, uh, the prices are pretty depressed. They look, to me, on fairly cheap because this earnings, you know, earnings are only going to be depressed for maybe a year or so. Okay, we have interest rates hit, but then interest rates will... The economy starts to peel off, and last month's uh, last quarter's growth was quite soft. Um, you know, the RBA might be cutting interest rates this time next year, and and people always look to the future. And if they see interest rate cuts, I say, oh well, things are getting better, and those stocks will probably rebound. So, you know, it's very tough to make that judgment call. In the short term, they're probably going to have some tough times, but you know, people will eventually want to buy another TV or another. So far, I know we bought a lot in um, in the pandemic. I must admit, uh, my laptop, which I bought basically in the pandemic, is starting to starting to play up. So I'm going to have to replace <laughs> it eventually. So, um, but you know, that's why it's not easy. It's not very easy to say. You know, uh, is is JB Hi-Fi or Harvey Norman a buy or a sell? Because um, they're pr- they're actually in price for for a big falls in earnings. Um, if the falls aren't as much as people see, and their dividends do hold up, so because the earnings hold up then they'll be good investments if if uh yeah just so it probably depends a lot on how many more interest rate rises we have um and that's you know that's difficult to tell yeah that really speaks to that um that aspect of you know at what point do you buy into a stock on the basis of it being cheap um, you know, if the, if dividends have, have been cut, yeah. um, but if the outlook for the stock price is attractive um, and the company, you know, even though they're not paying dividends right now, they have been dividend payers, sort of at, at what point do you buy that kind of stock even if their dividend yield is not currently attractive? Yeah, and that, that is a difficult question. It depends a little bit also on the style. So, what, I mean, one of the things that 
we do have though. Well, um, we do have an income objective, so we want to get more income in the market. So we can't stuff our portfolio full of non-dividend payers, hoping they will actually start to repay, you know, start to pay a dividend because um, uh, we're not going to satisfy a dividend uh, objective in the short term. But it doesn't mean you can't. So if you actually look at the last cycle, not this cycle, but the last cycle for Qantas, so Qantas. Um, Share price got absolutely got absolutely hammered in the GFC, and it stopped paying dividends and it stopped for about six or seven years. Um, and then it started to pay dividends and actually was becoming very profitable. And then the pandemic hit and, and you know it reset. So it's it is airlines are pretty cyclical businesses. And if you go back to the GFC, it might be you know it might be five or six years before Qantas pays another dividend because they borrowed more money and they've got a huge investment program in planes, etc. But so that is hard. But it depends on the type of investor. If you're not income focused and you're a very what I call contrarian value manager, they'll be getting into those stocks pretty early, waiting for, you know beforehand, and because they're focused on that big rebound in the share price from the bottom. But you've got to do your homework well because. Um, you know, some of those stocks do rebound and some don't. I think one of the point I'm coming to, though, is you can't be sure about all these things, and, and, and it, it depends on... I mean, we could have another downturn, etc. And, I, I, you know, interesting about Qantas. Qantas has had some great results uh, recently, but um, I fly a fair bit. I go and see my clients, and, they, and uh, the planes seem to be a little emptier, and uh, the airfares are all, seem to be dropping. So I look at... Prices I've paid in the last, uh, my last trip was only like last week, uh, two weeks ago. Um, it was substantially cheaper than similar airfares that I was buying in, only in March this year. So I think actually interest rates are starting to reduce the amount of discretionary because travel is a bit of discretionary spending. And there was uh, some pent up demand. Do you think that's that's well? That's, that's the thing. There were, there were, one of the reasons they did really well is there's a huge pent up demand. You know, grandparents going to see their grandkids and family reunions, and you know, just seeing friends and haven't you know, haven't done it for two three years, particularly if you're in Perth or something or other. Um, and and so there was this huge impetus for people to travel, and even even to the extent that they they're not worried too much about the prices they have. It's like I just want to see my grandkids or what have you now that I can. And I think a lot of that's now over and. Uh, if you've got people that are seeing, you know, facing big interest rate rises and they're doing their budget and they're you know, going to pay another $1,000 on the mortgage, then they're not going to jump on a plane and, 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 and see friends uh, as quickly because they're not going to have the money. So you know, I, I think you'll see even that, that end um, slow down a bit. But um, who knows? I mean, but one of the things I think it does highlight is um, you can never be sure about these things. So... Um, Having a diversified portfolio and not putting all eggs on, yes, Qantas is the greatest stock in, in the world. It's going to rebound and pay, start paying massive dividends because things can come out of the blue. And, um, you know, I think one of the lessons from, from being an investor is to know that uh, no matter how much hard work we do, how much analysis we do, if we get 60% of our investment decisions right, that's pretty good. The average manager probably only gets, you know, just, Bit like a uh, you know a bit over fifty mid fifties right, and that means you're getting like you know maybe fifty five right and forty five wrong, and um, that's not great odds. So you want to you want to make sure you've got um, you, you know you're investing in quite a few of your best bets, not just uh, or best stocks, not not a few, and and that's where I think. Um, we differ from many managers in that we we're running a broadly diversified portfolio of around eighty to ninety stocks. Um, you know, it's quite different to many managers who might only have twenty stocks. And you know, if you've got twenty stocks, five percent of your portfolio is in one stock. If that you get the call wrong, if something comes out of left field, like a we got Medibank wrong, Medibank private. You know, the the um, cyber attack, etc., came out of the blue. Everything else looked good for that stock. You know, the interest rates are starting to rise, which is which is good. Um, their claims had been much lower through the pandemic, so they were actually making good money. Um, and uh, it looked like a good investment for us, and then the cyber thing came out of out, out left field. And can, no you really, one, you, can you invest for that, though, those kind of extreme exogenous shocks? Well, I, I don't think anybody can, can predict those. And it doesn't matter how much research you've done, how do you know that some Russians are going to successfully hack them and what have you? I mean, um, and that's why... 
you know, you don't put it all on red, so to speak. You know, you want to have a diversified portfolio, and and we manage for retirees as well, and and you know they want to have that's their nest egg. They want to protect it. So, you know, say finance one hundred and one, free the only free lunch is diversification. So for a start, have a, a well diversified portfolio. Um, so no matter how, how much homework we've done, um, we're not going to get all the calls right. And I, I think having that, you know, knowing that, whereas being too overconfident, thinking, yeah, this company's definitely, definitely, <coughs> you had, you know, 5% in, in Medibank private, it fell quite heavily for, uh, for a month or two. It was actually back to where it was prior to that, by the way. But um, for, for a couple of months there, it, it fell pretty heavily. Did you own a lot of it in terms of the weight? Well, no, no, we didn't. This, like we had like one percent in it. So that's what the thing is. It it, it it's not nearly as bad if you only have one percent. But if you had five percent in your portfolio and it falls thirty or forty percent, then that that you know you've lost one half two percent there and there. And so, um, you know, understanding you know um, how good you are and, and not being overconfident, I think is is and, you know, it's a behavioural bias. I think many of us. You know, feel that we're we're overconfident in what we do. Like you know, you hear the story of uh, you know, ask ask an audience who's an above average driver. You know, just about <laughs> everybody puts their hand up because no one's going to admit they're a below average driver. So everyone's very confident in what they do and, and often you know take risks that they shouldn't be taking. And so I think yeah, being very risk aware, understanding um, that you're not going to get all calls right, build a well diversified portfolio so that you haven't got too much in a Medibank private if something comes out of left field or whatever the next, you know, sort of thing may be. You a good driver, Don? I'd say I'm an average driver. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Bias-free. I've I've never caused an accident, let's put it that way, so. (laughs) (laughs) Let's put um, red flags to one side for a second. What makes a dividend sustainable? Well, ultimately a dividend is, comes from a, sustainable earnings you know it's earnings first that enables you to pay the dividends and so you need sustainable earnings and um so what are sustainable companies would be if i look at the australian marketplace etc interesting it is stocks like csl or or um woolworths or coles or in those consumer staple type areas where you know even in through the pandemic these companies thrive so when a lot of other companies were were um, were struggling. Those sort of safe and steady uh, industries had good sustainable dividends and sustainable earnings. And in fact, it's the earnings that create the dividends. The problem is that we've talked about CSL; it's trading on an incredibly low yield. So it might, it might have been able to grow dividends and you know and sustainably grow dividends, although even it um, you know had a setback a year or so back. But um, the uh, um, yeah, often those stocks that are that have great sustainable dividends are trading on a very high share prices, so the yields are very low. So, I mean, the way we approach this is, you know, we we're very active managers. It's not a set and forget. It's not like let's buy the best dividend-paying stocks for the next ten years or five years or what have you, um, because the longer your horizon is, the less likely you'll be able to predict it for a start. I mean, you know. We went back to the start of 2020. Who would have predicted we'd had a pandemic and the market would fall, you know, 30, 40% in six weeks? I don't think anybody would have. Um, and, and, you know, huge uh, ramifications for that. So, um, and prior to the GFC, not many people predicted the GFC, etc. So, you know, and there was a lot of companies went broke in that situation that people thought were heroes. So um, it's very hard to p- predict good sustainable dividend things. So... We are actually, in, to many extent, in terms of capturing dividends, we're fairly short term. Um, we can predict things in the, you know, for the next six months are a lot more likely in the next five years. So if we see a stock that's trading on a good, not historical yield, but forward yield, so on the based on the expectation of what they're going to pay for the next dividend, and that's trading on a good yield, um, we'll take a position in that stock. Not a huge position, so we, you know, we're still going to be well diversified, but we do it across a lot of stocks. We go overweight these stocks. We'll get, we'll hold them. Hopefully, we're right, and we'll, we'll get the dividend. They'll, they'll go extra dividend, and then we can reassess that company. And maybe once we've got the dividend from from company A, then we'll, you know, company B's going to announce its dividend a, a couple of months later or a few weeks later. We can we can move our money into there and get dividends from another company. So by actively trading the portfolio, 
um, that's how we get sustainably higher yield on our fund or our, our on our total portfolio. But we're actually quite active at trading in the portfolio in stocks where we see good yields. Whereas something like a CSL, we actually have a, a reasonable holding in it, but we don't move around because we're not going to buy more of it to get a tiny, tiny little unfranked dividend. But in in banks, in some of the mining companies, um, and you know, in the past, in consumer discretionary companies where we see some good dividends, we'll we'll buy them essentially for a short term. Um, but if we still like the company, we may actually hold keep holding it. If if we just bought it for the dividend, we might reduce or sell out of that company completely and buy another company. But you know, six months later, the company pays you know there's interim and final dividends for most companies. We might go back in and get the get the later dividend. So. That's where we're fairly unique and we have a very active style to capture those dividends rather than, you know, I'll buy the 20 highest yielding stocks in the marketplace and that's going to give me a great yield. Um, but it probably will get a few of the dividend traps and the, and the performance of those might be quite poor. And if, you know, CSL and some of the healthcare stocks and, and, and other stocks do well, we're going to miss out on their returns. So what is the split there in the portfolio between um, the, you know, all weather, all season stocks, um, and you know the the seculars in bear markets and the cyclicals in bull markets. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll put it another way. But we probably um, actively trade about half our portfolio, and the other half is sort of more longer term positions that you know we've in some cases held overweights in stocks for for years, like Macquarie Bank. We might move it up and down a little bit around dividends, but we've been overweight for probably the, virtually the life of the fund. So uh, it's about 50-50, and our turnover is around 150 to 200% in a typical year, um, which means we're trading about half the portfolio, turning it over probably three three or four times a year because there's this sort of, you know, a good spread of dividends throughout the year, the, a lot of, lot in February, March, and then again the same companies in, in August, September, and then you've got the September year-end companies of big banks and Macquarie and a few others um, Go X in, in May and some of the REITs as well, although the REITs don't have as good a yields because they don't, tend not to have franking credits. But, you know, that's May, June, and then again in um, sort of November, December. So there's opportunities to pick up dividends throughout the year and we actively trade to, to capture that. Is it too much to say that that 50% is, you know, a, a, almost a defensive allocation in a bear market and a growth allocation in a bull market? Um, no, no, it's not really. I mean, that the the fifty percent that we is really income focused that we're rotating, and um, as I said, you don't really rotate into growth stocks because the problem with growth stocks is they tend to trade on very low or, in fact, no yields, um, particularly overseas. But even in Australia, I mean, a lot of the the tech stocks or the CSLs, which we considered growth stocks, etc have very low or no yields and and so we're hardly likely to pivot to those for income we may put them in the portfolio more for that total return perspective particularly like the CSLs. all right let's tie this off um our listeners love stock picks um and you've you've mentioned them um throughout the conversation what income stocks do you have the highest conviction in uh in the short and medium term well, this is where I prefer not to give those tips because um, we are quite active and so we can change our picks very quickly. So, for instance, um, we have liked the energy stocks for the last 18 months and, you know, look at coal stocks made massive dividends and the Santos's and the Woodside's significantly increased their dividends. But coal prices have come off and oil prices have come off, but they're still going to be pretty profitable this year and be some decent dividends. But... We track commodity prices every day. And so if commodity prices change very quickly, our views can change quickly. So as an example, and again, it's history, but if you're you know, going into the pandemic, oil prices were actually softening, and even before the pandemic came, and so we were actually underweight energy. And then as we came into the pandemic, oil prices continued to, and energy prices came off substantially, and so we went more underweight. If you get towards the end of uh, 2020, um, and and into 2021, 20, uh, as people realised that the pandemic wasn't the end of the world, oil prices started to, to go take off again. And, and so 
even prior to the Ukrainian war, um, we were actually back, back into the energy stocks because their outlook was looking better. And then the Ukrainian war just made it, you know, just pushed prices up even ridiculously high. But the trend was already starting because people were starting to get back and drive. And, and you know, markets do tend to overreact. It's like it's the end of the world, you know, pandemic. It's like it's not like we're going to be locked away forever. But in the short term, we, we are. So, um, but, uh, you know, markets are longer-term animals. But, so, you know, we move that portfolio around quite a lot. And, again, if energy prices continue to fall, then we maybe would go underweight. So... I'm not going to, you know, the same with iron ore prices and, and particularly those sort of quite volatile resource-based sectors, you have to take a short-term view. Whereas, you know, go back a couple of years ago, we were very bullish on iron ore stocks. But iron ore prices have come off quite a lot, although they're, they're still quite profitable. They're still going to pay good dividends. They're just not super normal dividends. So I'm, I'm sidestepping your answer because I, I don't want someone to say, oh, Don, Don says this is a great stock um, because... Uh, especially if we only buy it for two or three months to get a dividend, um, I think a lot of people, you know, probably put it in the drawer and want to keep it forever, and that's that's certainly not the case. And you know, um, particularly in, in cyclical stocks, you, you you've got to do your homework, you've got to constantly look at the outlook for them. So we use our dividend trap model to sort of see if there's high risk that they might cut their dividend. We try and avoid those. So you know, we are in fact, you know, short-term investors, you know. Our long-term results are good, but it, to me, it's a, the, the long-term is a series of short-term, whereas I think some managers, it's like, I'm picking this stock because it's the best stock in the, for the next five years. But as I said before, there's a lot of things can happen in the next five years. So what kind of time horizon are you talking about here? Well, even... Well, there's two time horizons because we do look... Um, I mean, the, we have two steps in our process. First one is we want stocks with a good, what I call, long-term outlook and that to us is probably about 12 months um and although it tends to be often it doesn't change that much so even you know if it's got a great if it looks great today it'll probably still look great tomorrow and and in fact quite quite likely in 12 months time it might still look great right so um but it's really like a one-year sort of horizon and that's sort of our our long you know if you like our long-term focus and then overlaid with that the dividend uh, when we trade stocks or, or buy stocks for dividends, we are just looking quite short term for the next dividend, and we're really looking only a, about three months ahead. And I'm more certain about what's going to happen in the next three months than I am in the next twelve months. So, um, and certainly the next five years. Uh, so we are fairly short term, but you know the long term is a series of short terms. Well, three just three months, just to the next dividend. That Essentially, short, that well, well, three to six horizon. months, I suppose. But like when we often buy stocks, um, yeah, we're, we're looking really only about three months out. Because what we're always looking for is if I'm going to build, you know, let's say I've, well, there aren't many, but let's say a stock has, has recently got X dividend and, and we can, uh, so we've captured, we've got the dividend entitlement and the franken credit entitlement held at 45 days. We have this decent sort of, if you like, sell or reassessment decision is um, we, the stock's gone ex-dividend. We've held it for more than 45 days, so we'll get the dividend, the franken credit entitlement. We can now look ahead to, uh, you know, do we want to keep that stock or do we want to look for something that might pay a dividend or go ex-dividend in the next couple of months? And so often that's, you know, reassess that position and move into a stock based on that. You've spoken very persuasively about the need to be active in the market. For those investors who may think it's a set-and-forget proposition, um, what are they missing out on by just having portfolios full of, you know, your Telstra's, your CBA's, your BHP's? Yeah, well, if you went back, you know, eight or ten years ago and said, what's your, you know, what's a typical income portfolio, and probably still is for a lot of retail investors, it would be Telstra and a couple of banks and maybe BHP. And you look over the last 10 years, Telstra has cut its dividend almost in half, and now it's starting to add a few increases back to that dividend, but still nowhere near where it was, and the share price has peeled off accordingly. Um, the banks um, cut their dividends through the Royal Commission, uh, almost all of them, and then you had Austrac and other things, and, and had a tough time from both dividends and total return. And then, um, you know, the pandemic and... You know, APRA came out and told them they, they basically shouldn't pay dividends and 
and and you know ANZ didn't, and other banks did, but paid smaller dividends. And then um, you know by the end of 2020, um, APRA said, "Oh, okay, you can go back and pay dividends," and, and they've started to increase them. And and you know CBA is now paying a dividend that's higher than the pre-pandemic uh, dividend, so it cut it, and then it's but it's, it's increased it more back to where it was. But you've seen quite a bit of um, volatility there, so. You know, to me, it's not set and forget because things can change dramatically. So you had royal commissions and you had the pandemic in those situations. Um, and in Telstra's situation, you're still getting less dividends now than you, you were 10 years ago and the share prices is quite lower. So, you, you know, you've, you've probably struggled if you had that portfolio. BHP's had, had some downs and some ups, actually. I mean, my um, resource, resource prices came off quite heavily in 2016 and then, then they rebounded quite strongly and then the last... Yeah, go back two two years ago, iron ore prices went uh, through the roof, and you know the iron ore stocks were paying fantastic dividends. BHP was probably one of the sour notes of the of the reporting season in February because it had like a you know big sort of forty ish percent cut in its dividend from the prior year, um, which sort of pulled the market down. Even though the, the median stock was up seven percent, but BHP was was going against that because purely because iron ore prices fell. Well, there's two issues. One, iron ore prices fell. The other one is, you know, just 12 months ago, BHP spun off its oil and gas assets to Woodside. And, in fact, you think about that, it would have had better results had it not done that because oil and gas prices have been strong in the last uh, year or so. So, you know, they've, they've done it for other, other reasons. Um, and, indeed, if you've held on to the Woodside, you've got the benefit of a big increase in their, in their dividends. So, if, you know, swings and roundabouts. So you hold Macquarie. Do you hold any of the majors? Yeah, we do. Um, I mean, it's very hard not... If you're dividend-focused in Australia, it's hard not to own the banks, but we're not necessarily overweight banks. That's I think that's one of the issues. Is that you, you know, If people only have a couple of banks in Telstra in their portfolio, then they've got a massive exposure to banks. And, um, you know, we're... When I say overweight, we're actually probably slightly under or at or under... Uh, index weight in banks as a as a total so you know still have a reasonable holding but you know if you had three stocks in your portfolio telstra and two banks so you could probably got two-thirds of your portfolio in banks and might be a lot in cba etc that's that's not a well diversified portfolio nor is it if you throw in bhp i mean you know you've actually got um you know just exposure to a couple of sectors so stepping back a bit um you know concentration risk in uh, within income paying equities um, is a big risk in our market with financials and commodities. Yep. Um, how big realistically can income portfolios um, be? Like how, how how many stocks is the portfolio holding um, at the moment, in other words? So we're holding around 90 stocks. Okay. Um, but remember, you know, we've got a very big pool of money. We wouldn't expect a retail, and that's, I think, where... We have an advantage over a retail investor who's directly investing in stocks. It's hard to follow more than half, you know half a dozen stocks if you're doing it by yourself, or you know, maybe you could do ten. But um, you know, we have a big team. We have a lot of uh, computing power and, and data feeds and everything else. So you know, we're we're pulling data down every day and analysing stocks, pulling out commodity prices and looking at the impact of those changes on on all the commodity stocks. So um, you know. And uh, we have a lot of advanced tools to build a well-diversified portfolio, so to make sure that we don't have too much exposure to one sector or, or one um, uh, risk factor. So we do a lot of analysis, like looking at what-if type stuff, if interest rates were suddenly to increase another 1% or what have you, what would be the impact on our portfolio? So we do look at those sorts of things to st- stress it and build a, a, well, a truly well-diversified portfolio. So you're saying that a retail investor that doesn't own um, a fund such as yours, it's going to be hard for them to achieve that kind of diversification with the, with the resources that they can put into investing? Yeah, I think, I think it is because uh, the rough rule of thumb is you need about 20 randomly selected stocks to get start to get good diversification. And that, that means not all in the same sector or even two sectors, you want to have broad diversification across many sectors. So it's going to be very hard for them to have, um, I suppose, manage that diversification risk. 
um, I mean, we say we use a lot of advanced analytical tools to build our portfolios, and they're not something that a, a, a retail investor has access to. So you're not getting your free lunch until about 20 stocks? The academics say if you just randomly select stocks, you need 20, 30 to, to get reasonable diversification. Um, they do go to the extreme and they, you know, they basically say you've got to buy the whole market to get good diversification. Our portfolios would typically have very about the same amount of risk as the market, but with about you know less than half the number of stocks. So I mean, like ASX two hundred or ASX three hundred, our the risk of our portfolio is around the same as that, but we only own about ninety of the sort of our universe really the three hundred. So we, we we're only like the top third, if you like, of the, of the stocks in the market. All right, time for our three favourite questions. Uh, Don, question one, what's the one thing investors are getting wrong about markets today? Well, I, th- I think one of the things that, that I'm getting, the questions I'm getting is that investors are very um, doom and gloom because whenever they you know, turn on the television or listen to the radio or, or what have you, there's a lot of negatives around. Um, it's... Uh, inflation is at 30-year highs. Interest rates, we've, we're now in the, the high, you know, the, the the strongest tightening cycle ever in terms of uh, RBA setting short-term cash rates. Now, I only started setting them in 1990, but this the the amount of tightening that we've had over the last just over 12 months is more than what we saw in 1994, 90, uh, 1994, which up until then was probably the worst cycle in terms of both bond and equity markets selling off together. So, um there is a lot of doom and gloom around, and, and you know, in, all you hear the wall of, of home loans, you know, falling off the, the cliff, falling off, people going from um, fixed rate to, to variable rates, and people not being able to uh, afford to eat or, or, or uh, pay their mortgage and those sorts of things. Um, there, so there is a lot of doom and gloom around. Um, but a lot of our indicators, one of the ones I like, which is that, which sort of highlights the sort of risk of dividends. It's only slightly elevated. It's a little bit above average, but it's not massively above average. And I think people tend to you know, say there's there's a lot of doom and gloom around. Like one of the client told me, he says, "I know all the negatives. Tell me the positives." And um, there are still a fair few positives. The first one is um, we have full employment. If you want a job, there's plenty of jobs out there. So people have jobs, and if you've got a job, you pay your mortgage. So. Um, it's only if we start to see big layoffs and people start losing their jobs that you, people are going to stop paying their mortgage. And um, the other thing is that a lot of the people feeling the pain would be people who have big rent increases or people that have um, um, probably recently purchased a house and borrowed a fair bit you know, in the last couple of years. Um, they're probably seeing the stress. But a lot of people you know, who've owned their home for 10, 20 years or what have you, or nearly paid off their mortgage, they're not going to be affected. People who own their own house are not affected at all. Um, so a, a lot of the, um, the Australians are actually still doing okay. In fact, a recent Commonwealth Bank um, survey, I think, used credit cards something, but they can dissect it down quite finely. And they found that, that um, over 55s are still spending there'd been no change in their spending patterns they're still spending as much as they were whereas the mortgage bracket people sort of the you know sort of below that um sort of 25 to 55 are cutting back on spending um but i say it's not everybody in that that that's doing it so you know there there are um you know economy is still doing pretty well our exports are going well um you know that we are seeing wage rises start to come through you know just saw the minimum wage decent rise there um, so there's a, there's a lot of positive. A lot of people saved a lot of money in the pandemic and those savings are coming down, but we're coming from a pretty strong side of things. As I mentioned before, median dividend increases 7%. Companies are still doing generally pretty well. Um, and to me, the outlook for dividends is still pretty strong. So as a millennial, it's fair that I blame my parents for sticky inflation? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't think you should blame your parents for inflation, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, probably not. They cop enough. Um, question two, could you share a story of a big win or a big loss you've had in your career? Um, what went down and what did you learn from it? 
Yeah, so here's an interesting one, and it probably comes to the shorter term rather than the longer term. So I'll take a positive rather than a negative, but although in many cases you do learn from mistakes. So we actually, a lot of our red flags are, have been developed through the fact that we've sort of looked back and said, why did we, what are we missing in this stock, et cetera. But let's take a positive. So this is, you know, sort of 20, over 20 years ago now, but Rio um, took over North. Uh, but what happened was that, uh, and I remember this pretty vividly, there was, um, after the market closed, uh, there was like a share raid in Rio. That, well, didn't, I don't think it announced it was Rio, but tried to buy um, a big stake in, in North as a sort of put its foot down. And um, we held North at the time, and I was working for Westpac Investment Management at the time. We had a re- decent overweight position, and, um, and uh, Rio were offering a, a much higher price than the market because they were about to launch a takeover bid. And we sold some of the stock into that. And made, you know, like quite handsome, like 15% or 20% higher than what it's trading in the market. Cause, and that's typical for a takeover bid, you pay a lot more. And um, and it, then it came out that Rio was going to take them over, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the company actually, Norse came in to see us and Malcolm Broomhead and... Um, and he, he quite fairly said, I'm not going to fight this takeover. They've got big pockets, et cetera. But what I want to do is I want to maximise, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm opening the books and I'm going to make sure that shareholders get a, get as much as they can, you know, pay out, that whoever wins this takeover offer gets as much as they can. And, um, and it may, you know, and the share price had actually come back a bit. So we're better... It, 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 Rapidly rise and then it actually fell fell back a bit because there was a you know nothing, no new information for a while, and I looked at it and, and thought, well, I think they're going to get taken over and and there are potential other bidders around that could likely push up the price. And so, whilst we'd sold a bit, some of our holding into 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 that takeover, um, I went and bought more on the market because I thought that that there'd be a lot more. Um, uh, a potentially bidding war on this stock, and and management wanted, you know, we're looking to probably encourage it. So, um, and there was a lot of speculation around, and it's interesting that amongst the team there were different. I ran in one of the big funds, but there were a couple other portfolio managers, and they said, "Well, we've just how can we go and buy this stock back that we've just sold? We've just sold this stock. Why? How can we actually go back and rebuy it? It was just, you know, it's like." why would we change our mind and do it? And I said, well, because we think we're going to sell it for, a, it's going to be sold for an even higher price. And I went and yeah, topped back up and went back to where I was before, which is you know, increased that overweight. And the other guys didn't. And then, you know, a couple of months later, a bidding war did eventually happen. Or I can't even remember who the other player was at the time. But, yeah, the share price ended up going off at like another 10 or 15% higher with the takeover bid. And actually had come down. So... Made about another twenty percent on that on that sort of trade, and that's sort of like you think about that. It's, but again, it was it was still it wasn't like the whole portfolio's bet on that, but it was just a, a lesson of like you know, it's a, every, every decision's a short term decision, and and, um, and just because you've sold something, doesn't mean you can't buy it back, uh, and because if you think you're going to make more money out of it, then you know, historical trades are there. It's always looking forward as to whether I'm going to make more money on this stock. I should buy it. Question three, and <clears throat> it's just dawned on me that this question might be redundant given the entire chat we've had today. But nonetheless, uh, if markets were to close tomorrow for five years and you could only own shares in one company, uh, which company would it be and why? Well, I'm going to give you a trick answer to this question. The company would be uh, Plato Income Maximizer. Because <laughs> <laughs> Plato Income Maximizer is actually our listed investment company, which itself invests into the 90-odd companies that we own. So it's a well-diversified portfolio. So, you know, yeah, you're right. Based on everything I've told you is don't put, you know, law of diversification, don't put all your eggs into one basket. Five years is a very long time, even though, you know, you, we talked about stocks like sustainable dividends would be CSL and, and, and um, uh, Woolworths or Coles. But, you know, what if CSL got majorly hacked and... and um, or no, something went wrong and they lost their license to operate, like they um, in the US, their their main market. That would be disastrous. And and they're an extremely good company. They have a lot of controls, etc. But you know, let's say they were they they got hacked and someone 
broke the systems and blah 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 and and, and they made it something disastrous happen then um, you know it, it things could change no one can predict what's happening in five years so stick to a diversified portfolio but doesn't you know I'm telling my own book there but like you'd probably be better off in a diversified ETF or you know some sort of diversified portfolio rather than trying to pick the one best stock well played done <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks so much for coming in. This has been an awesome chat. Uh, We'd love to have you back on soon. All right, thanks for having me. Hope you enjoyed that episode of The Rules of Investing. If you did, give it a like. And don't forget to subscribe for free to livewiremarkets.com. We'll see you next time.